welcome to Unjustly Maligned, the show for people who go against the grain. We seek to rehabilitate overlooked, ignored, derided, and just plain hated contributions to pop culture. Movies, novels, music, comic books, video games, whatever. If everyone hates it, we'll find someone who loves it and let them explain why you should too. I'm your host, Anthony Johnston. And my guest today is a man who works in marketing by day, but by night is a cinephile and critic, mostly focusing on the Star Wars movies. To that end, he's probably best known as the author of the Star Wars Ring Theory website. And if you have no idea what that is, don't worry, you're going to hear plenty more about it over the course of this episode. <laughs> he is, of course, Mr. Mike Climo. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, hi, how you doing? Thank you very much for having me. You're very welcome. Now, um, regular listeners will know this is a kind of sequel itself of sorts to our earlier episode where we discussed episode one with Erica Ensign. Um, so, and I'm not really giving anything away there because obviously people will have seen the title of the show. So introduce yourself, tell us what you've decided to talk about, give us some context around its release, and then explain why uh, you think, and why frankly you may be the only person who thinks that that uh, <laughs> is wrong. Right. Well, um, I'm here to talk about Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones. I guess to, just to kick things off, um, you know, it was released back in, in 2002. Um, obviously, it was a follow-up to, to Episode One: Phantom Menace. Um, upon its release, um, the film received, I think, fairly fairly mixed reactions from from critics and audiences. Um, probably mixed us to slightly positive, I would say. If you, you know, you could um, take a look at Rotten Tomatoes, and um, I think it received like a sixty-seven percent fresh rating. I think the audience score is somewhere around sixty percent. So that's pretty low for a Star Wars movie, though, isn't it? Believe it or not, um, the um, the prequel trilogy. You now, if you use Rotten Tomatoes methodology, uh, the prequel trilogy actually overall um, was better reviewed than. Um, the original trilogy films were during the time of their release. Huh. Yeah, I know it's it's uh, I know it's 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 hard to swallow, but it's it's actually true. <laughs> yeah, 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 Rotten Tomatoes actually put out a, um, a you know a really a good article about that in, in two thousand five. So I do want to add though, I mean, I don't think Rotten Tomatoes is the is the best barometer for for cinematic quality by you know by any stretch of the imagination, but um, but I do think in this case it, it helps at least get a, a feel for the general response from from critics and audiences. Sure. So, I mean, given the the mixed reaction, I mean, some critics and fans thought it was a you know a big improvement over the Phantom Menace, and and, and some things, um, some people, you know, thought you know it got got a little worse. But um, in terms of criticisms, you know, all the all the usual suspects, you know, for a Star Wars film are there. You know, the bad acting and the terrible dialogue and, and the thin, poorly drawn characters and. You know the film's lifeless. It's devoid of any real emotion. It's it's all spectacle, no substance. You know, you know overall, it's just maybe dumb kid stuff. So I, I think, you know, I don't think that was anything you know new uh, to a Star Wars movie. No, that's true. Um, but I thought maybe before we dive specifically into clones, you know, if it's okay with you, I thought maybe I could take a step back and and make, maybe briefly talk about um, Star Wars Ring Theory because. Um, I think it actually goes a long way, I think, towards explaining not only why why this film is unjustly maligned, but also why, quite frankly, I think all the Star Wars films have been unjustly maligned, you know, over the years. Please go ahead. I, part of the reason why I invited you to come and talk on the show is because you have this uh, quite wide-ranging theory about the prequel. So, yeah, tell us what it is. 
Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, and once I talk about the theory, then I'd love to come back and, and maybe talk, you know, turn our attention towards Attack of the Clones and, and spe- specifically how that, how it fits into this, because it's, that film in particular, it's, ex- I mean, it's really fascinating, I think, what, what Lucas was able to do. It's, um, so, Star Wars Ring Theory. So, so, we've all noticed some parallels, you know, between, you know, um, between the between the pictures you know now that the prequels are over i think you know when we were watching them i think i think it was you know painfully obvious that you know while we were watching the phantom menace i mean there were there were parallels to a new hope while you watch clones there were parallels to empire and and while we watched sith there was parallels to to jedi you know and lucas has talked about this quite extensively and it's something he did very deliberately you know to show that that luke and anakin you know essentially go through the same things they just make slightly different choices. Um, you know, he often compares this parallelism to music, and um, I think as your previous guest, you know, pointed out. Uh, but at one point during the making of the prequels, it was the, the documentary on the, on the Phantom Menace DVD, he compared this to poetry. And if anybody who's, who's watched the Red Letter Media, you know, um, attacks on the films, you know, uh, knows that, that they kind of had a field day with this comment, you know, saying that, you know, everything rhymes, it's like poetry, and even though I think by now it maybe becomes clear that I'm not sure Red Letter Media had any idea what Lucas was really up to. So I just want to kind of, if we take Lucas's poetry analogy one step further, and if you think of the Star Wars films as kind of like a six-stanza poem, and each film represents one stanza, then the rhyme scheme becomes ABC, ABC, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think that's any surprise. But here's where things get really interesting. Because it turns out that there's a, a far more intricate rhyme scheme going on, and it's done so subtly, and it's, it's so sophisticated, that it's no surprise that we, I think we all missed it. Um, and it's taken almost 10 years, if you think about it, from, from when Revenge of the Sith came out in 05, for, for I think any, any of us to really kind of understand, you know, what Lucas was up to. Um, and kind of as a, as a side note, I mean, this is kind of a big deal. I mean, and not just to Star Wars. I mean, I'm a Star Wars fan, but I think I'm, I'm more of a cinema fan um, first. So in terms of cinematic storytelling, um, in terms of just storytelling in general, I mean, this is, this is pretty, um, pretty extraordinary. And to the best of my knowledge, it's, it's really unprecedented in, in the history of cinema. So to get this other rhyme scheme, so, so what did Lucas do? So Lucas used this in an ancient storytelling device called, called ring composition. So what is ring composition? Well, it's, it kind of goes back thousands of years, and it's, it's been used in everything from the epic poetry of Homer to the Bible to help kind of people understand what this is. If you think about, you know, we're all familiar with JFK's famous line, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what, what you can do for your country. Mm-hmm. So that's actually a figure of speech known as chiasmus. You know, it's where the second part uh, of a sentence is the reversal of a first. So in this case, um, in the first part of the sentence, JFK says country and then you, and, and then in the second part, he says you and then country. Now, if we give each of those words or elements a letter, then the pattern is A, B, B, A, right? Mm-hmm. Now, ring composition is really just kind of a larger, more complex version of chiasmus. The story in this sentence, in this sense, is is organized into a sequence of events, and you go from a beginning to a well-marked midpoint, and then the ring turns, and the first sequence of elements is repeated in reverse order. It's really important until the story returns to the starting point. So what that means is that the first and the last elements correspond to each other, and the second and second to last, and and the third and the third to last. Um, and so if we give each element a letter, the pattern then becomes A B C. 
CBA, you know, just like the, the JFK example. Sure. So this creates a kind of mirror image of, or, or circle, you know, hence the term ring composition. So, and it turns out that this pattern perfectly describes what happens with episodes one through six. Mm-hmm. So, yes, the Phantom Menace on its surface um, looks to uh, echo A New Hope. It actually more closely corresponds to Return of the Jedi. Attack of the Clones more closely corresponds to The Empire Strikes Back, and Revenge of the Sith corresponds to A New Hope. Again, what this kind of means is that the sequence of events starts with The Phantom Menace and progresses to Revenge of the Sith, where events come to that crucial midpoint. Then the ring turns, and the first sequence, ABC, is repeated in reverse order, bringing the story full circle back to the beginning. And here's what I think is really cool, though. These parallel sections in the ring composition are usually marked with just key words, right? Um, but each pair of corresponding films in the Star Wars ring composition is, um, is matched using every possible aspect of cinema. I mean, narrative structure, plot points, visuals, dialogue, themes, and music. I mean, it's down to just the most granular detail. It's, it's just remarkable. And in terms of, I mean, interpretation, I mean, this is, here's what's really important is that, you know, one of the reasons why this was done is, you know, the full meaning of the text. I mean, if you want to, um, interpret the pictures, you know, it, it really only can become clear when the reader, or in this case, the viewer, grasps the interplay, you know, between all these corresponding elements. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot more to this, you know, uh, this is just kind of give you a basic idea of the overall pattern. You know, I think Lucas has a lot of amazing tricks up his sleeve and takes the idea much, much further. But, you know, when all is said and done, you know, the six movies actually kind of fit together like puzzle pieces. Um, and they form an image, not just not just a circle, and I don't want to give it away, but it's much more than just a simple a simple ring. Um, so it, the essay, you know, it's at StarWarsRingTheory.com. I try to walk through the whole thing step by step, make it as easy to understand as possible. But yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it, is, it is pretty long. Yeah, it's kind of, it's essentially a short book. <laughs> but if, even if you don't want to read the whole thing, you can just kind of flip through it and, and you kind of get, start to get a sense of, of kind of the magnitude of, of Lucas's accomplishment and what he was really up to because if you think about it i mean this this becomes kind of the the engine behind almost all of the creative decisions that he made i'm guessing when he started down the path of the prequels wow yeah that's kind of ring composition in a nutshell i know it's kind of a a lot to to digest you know i don't know whether it's I mean, the website's a lot to digest. Yes, as you say, it is quite long. Um, I don't know whether the theory itself is a lot to digest so much as, you know, if I may play devil's advocate here. I mean, are you are you not just seeing patterns? Because ha- humans are hardwired to see patterns in everything. Are you not just seeing patterns where none exist? I mean, you say how subtle it is. I mean, it sounds like it's, is it not so subtle that actually it's not really there? And you're imposing your own uh, thoughts and interpretations onto it, which is valid. But, you know, I have to wonder this, uh, the assertion that Lucas deliberately did these things, considering the flack that Lucas came in for with the prequels, do you not think he might have mentioned it? Well, uh, the dreaded, the dreaded question. I mean, well, I'm sure many people have asked you this question. I know, but I, I really, I think it's it is the elephant in the room that we have to, you know, deal with before we move on to talking about uh, Attack of the Clones. Right. So, what you're referring to is called apophenia, right? 
And I'm intimately familiar with this idea. I'm a big fan of Michael Shermer. He calls it patternicity, which is essentially just detecting patterns and meaningless noise. Mm-hmm. Um, I am very, you know, as much as I love art and I love the cinematic art form and, and, and how it kind of stimulates people's imaginations to maybe see things that aren't there. Like you said, it is valid. I, I enjoy that. But uh, this was a painstaking, you know, attempt to support this theory, you know, and I guess in the scientific sense of the word, I didn't necessarily mean it, you know, in the layman's term, you know, the layman's sense of hunch or guess. So to try to support this theory with, you know, as much evidence as I could from the films themselves, from George Lucas, and from as many people that were also involved in the picture. Um, I, I do think the evidence is, is overwhelming. I mean, Lucas he's always been kind of a humble person in terms of talking about, you know, um, maybe the significance or what's really going on in a lot of these pictures. But at the same time, you know, if you go through the essay, I mean, he's, he's all but admitting it, you know, in terms of making the analogy that these pictures are like, um, uh, or uh, in making these pictures, it's, it's a lot like music, you know, and he's taking the, uh, he's taking an idea and then he's changing the arrangement and the instrumentation and, and, and playing, you know, uh, the same note, only differently. Yeah, he makes allusions to symphonies, I believe, a few times, doesn't he? Yeah, and, and he uses the term visual jazz. And, it's, and this isn't anything new to Star Wars. I mean, he's been doing this, you know, early, you know, uh, you know ever since he was a student filmmaker at USC. You know, kind of, again, taking, that, taking one idea and interpreting it differently, uh, which I think he even did in THX, which is essentially he's telling the same story three different ways. Sure. And it's something many storytellers do throughout their career. Uh, you know, don't have a problem with that at all. Sure. And, you know, I, again, I think and also it, it helps to kind of remember who George Lucas is and where he came from. I mean, he, you know, his roots are as an experimental filmmaker and very abstract, you know, non-story, non-character you know, almost visual tone poem. So, you know, he's always had that, ex, you know, that experimental, um, you know, part to him, you know, and that runs through THX, it runs through American Graffiti, um, and it certainly, you know, has, I think has run through uh, the Star Wars films. Um, but I think, you know, I, I'm willing to say that the evidence, I think, speaks for itself. I mean, you know, like just to give you a kind of a quick example for listeners, I mean, so when I say that the Phantom Menace, you know, may correspond to Return of the Jedi, so from like let's say a screen point a screenwriting point of view what you can do is if you break down you know each one of those pictures into its three acts you know I think a lot of people when they watch the film noticed that you know the end of return of the jedi I'm sorry the end of the phantom menace where you have a, these primitive Gun- gungans joining forces with the naboo to defeat the evil trade federation you know in a multi-strand battle was very much like the end of return of the jedi where the primitive Ewoks, you know, join forces with the rebels to defeat the evil Galactic Empire, you know, in a multi-strand battle. But when you dig a little deeper and you look at the first act, well, in the first act of Return of the Jedi, you essentially have two droids embarking on a mission to rescue Han Solo from Jabba the Hutt's palace. And in The Phantom Menace, you essentially have two Jedi embarking on a mission to rescue Queen Amidala from Theed Palace. So in both scenarios, you know, he's taking kind of a general idea and just interpreting it in a new way. Um, and again, even, you know, when you go to the middle parts of each one of those movies, well, what happens in the middle part of, you know, in the middle part of Return of the Jedi? Well, on the planet Endor, the native Ewoks befriend the rebels and, and help them take, uh, take them to the shield generator. Well, in Phantom Menace, on the planet Tatooine, a native, 
on that planet, Anakin Skywalker befriends the Jedi and helps them fix their ship. You know, in Jedi, there's a great chase involving speeder bikes. Well, in Phantom Menace, there's a great race involving pod racers. You know, in the, in the in kind of the, the penultimate moment in, in Phantom Menace in the middle of the picture is when Anakin leaves his mother to face the Jedi Council and become a Jedi. What happens in, in Return of the Jedi? Well, Luke leaves his friends to face Darth Vader and become a Jedi. You know, and there's even, um, you know, about the two-thirds mark, you know, in each picture, um, which is usually the crisis moment, you know, in, in screenwriting parlance. The, in Phantom Menace, Amidala falls into Palpatine's trap and calls for a vote of no confidence. And if you remember in, in, in Return of the Jedi, the rebels fall into Palpatine's trap and they attack the Death Star with its shield still up. So, I mean, and that's just kind of on a general level, right? When you take the, the overall structure of the, of the screenplays and what these, what these stories are. But when you actually, you can break it down by sequences, by scenes, you know, even down to individual shots and the way that the characters are blocked in the scene, you know, the, uh, the delivery of the dialogue and, you know, to the use of color, you know, it's, it's, it's rather extraordinary. And I, like I said, I think the, I think the evidence is, is, is fairly overwhelming, you know, very, you know, at least for the general pattern, I think. Obviously, we can squabble over the details, I think, and I'm not saying that those are all correct, but, you know, if somebody, <laughs> you know, it's a working theory at the same time. If somebody has a better, <laughs> you, know, you know, a better, you know, uh, explanation for all of these things, I'd, I'd love to hear it. But um, Well, you mentioned the general pattern, and... This is one thing I was going to say. You say that Lucas has always been quite humble about his ambitions in movies and stuff, and that, that is true. But at the same time, he never had a problem telling everyone who would listen that uh, the original Star Wars trilogy was all centred around Joseph Campbell's theory of the hero's journey. That's why I think, you know, shouldn't wouldn't he have mentioned this at some point? I could understand maybe if he did do this, I can understand him standing back and saying, let people find it for themselves. But after, at first, but then after all of the criticism that he came in for with the prequels from, I confess, people like me who did not like enjoy them, um, I can't help but think he would have said something. And some of the parallels that you've just listed, I mean, they just kind of fall into this pattern of the hero's journey. Um, in Empire, Luke leaves Yoda to go and fight Darth Vader at the end of that movie. So, you know, I, and I really don't think you can call the council being deceived by Palpatine compared, I don't think you can really compare that to the rebels being deceived into thinking that the Death Star isn't operational, you know, comparing that to a Senate vote. I don't know, they're just, it doesn't quite ring true, if you'll pardon the pun, <laughs> for me. But I mean, I don't know. It's I'm I didn't I didn't want to bring you on to argue about the theory because that's not, you know, the purpose of the show and I'm we would be here for hours and hours <laughs> if we did that. But I I hope you can see where you know some of the uh skepticism around this theory comes from. I do. You know, but let me just say that, you know, Lucas has never really you know, well, he has touched on, you know, the, the influence that Campbell has had on him. You know, this is remarkably like the conversation that happened, you know, from 1983 to, to 1999, um, where, you know, a lot of people, you know, refuse to, to see the, you know, the, the mythological and psychological underpinnings that Lucas has, has put into these movies to such, just in, in such detail. 
Um, I mean, he, he's talked about it, he touches on it, but it certainly isn't anything he's gone into, into length about. No, but what I mean is that he had no problem name-checking Campbell and talking about the hero's myth and telling people, yeah, I, I structured the movies around this hero's journey. Sure. Um, but at the same time, a lot of people, you know, I, I, I see why he's not going to go out there and, and you know, um, kind of stroke his, I don't see him going out there to stroke his own ego or, or, or trying to explain this theory in detail because, you know, like he says in one of the quotes that I use, at the end of the day, it's, it's just probably not that important to a lot of people who watch these movies, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's it, it, to me that all kind of just depends on on the viewer. You know, I've, a lot of the feedback has been, wow, you know, I've, I've it, it really kind of enhances my understanding and appreciation of the pictures, and I'll never look at the movies the same way again. And they think that the evidence just kind of speaks for itself. And then on the other hand, they say, no, I think you're reading too much into it. And, and even if so, um, even if even if it's all true, so what? You know, I, I still think the movies are bad. <laughs> See, uh, my reaction is actually the other way around. It's the opposite to that, which is that I I don't think that this that this theory is you know the case. But I appreciate anything that makes people look at a work of art, and regardless of what your opinion may be on the finished product, you know all movies are works of art. I appreciate anything that makes somebody look at a work of art with a different view you know, from a different viewpoint and bearing new things in mind and approach it from a new angle. I think that's absolutely commendable. So, you know, thank you for that. I just don't think that your theory is correct. <laughs> oh, well, let me give, well, if, you know, you mentioned the the, the moment with Palpatine, you know, and the, the two-thirds mark in both Jedi and the Phantom Menace. But like I said, when you dig a little deeper, pay attention, and, and I'm not sure if you've, if you've, if you've read through this yet, but You'll notice that, you know, this is, I think this is a really nice, subtle touch. Now, Palpatine greets Amidala, you know, when she lands in Coruscant and says it's, um, you know, it's a great gift to see you alive, Your Majesty, you know, meaning that, you know, um, you know, Amidala really hasn't realized that she just kind of walked into a trap. What's interesting is that uh, the scene in Menace plays at approximately the exact same point in time as its corresponding scene in Jedi, where Luke surrenders himself to Darth Vader. And not only do they happen at the exact same time, but they both happen on landing platforms. And both of the scenes take place with the same camera setup and the characters walking at the same angle. So, and in both, like I said, both scenes, you actually have, um, in, like in the sense of Amidala, she has just surrendered herself to Palpatine. She has just walked directly into a trap and she doesn't realize it. Whereas in Jedi, Luke has um, done so on purpose. So, you know, when you get down to these level of details and how much these shots, these scenes, these, these actions, you know, mimic each other, um, I think it just becomes harder and harder to say that this, you know, doesn't really exist. Well, but I think, okay, so here's the thing. I actually think you're probably right about that scene. I think it's more likely that individual scenes like that, yes, you would shoot them in a similar way and you would go, yeah, let's make this a parallel. It's this the idea of the movies as an overall structure being in this parallel that I have the most trouble with. Individual shots and scenes, yes, I can absolutely believe that because I know Lucas has talked about poetry and music and symphonies. And as a creator myself, I do that. 
You know, I have done that myself in my own stories. It's the temptation to do that is very strong. And when it's appropriate, it's very, very powerful. So on the level of individual scenes, as you say, things like the camera setups being the same, stuff like that, I can believe that. That I'm with you 100%. Yeah, it almost certainly was deliberate. But the overall structure of the movie and the idea that episode one is a parallel to episode six uh, in sort of grander structure, I that being a deliberate decision is more what I have a problem getting on board with. Right, right. No, I understand. I mean, I think it's that's fair. Let me rewind and ask you one thing. Which version of Jedi are you timing it to? Because you said that they happen at exactly the same moment in the movies. But there are two versions of Jedi. There's the theatrical version and there's the special edition. Well, and then there's the Blu-ray version. I don't is the timing different on the Blu-ray? I thought that was the same as the special edition in terms of uh, time codes. I'm not that I'm not 100% sure. Neither am I, I must admit. Yeah, I, I don't know if I'm 100% sure at that, but that's what I was timing it to. Right, right. So that would be the special edition, not the theatrical. Okay, I'll back off because that actually supports, given that special editions obviously are, Lucas always claims that they're how he always envisaged the movies uh, appearing, even though I don't think that's true. But that does actually back up your theory, so fair enough. <laughs> I just wanted to check. <laughs> so let's move on to talking about... Episode two, right? Uh, which, regardless of whatever theory of parallels you want to draw up, clearly is the one that's meant to parallel Empire, uh, and the one that ends with everything appearing to be lost, and you know now we need a heroic effort to save the day. Um, it is kind of ironic, I think, just right from the start, that pretty much everyone agrees. Well, old school fans, anyway, pretty much everyone agrees that the second film in the original trilogy, The Empire Strikes Back, is the best. I mean, just about everyone agrees that The Empire Strikes Back is the best Star Wars movie in the original trilogy. And yet, in the prequels, maybe not everyone in terms of the critics, but just about everybody I know thinks that this one is the worst of the prequels, and actually worse than Phantom Menace, possibly because it's so long. It's a really long movie, this. I know that, um, you know, that 538.com, they ran a um, they had a poll, I think this was maybe a year ago or so. And I mean, it was a pretty small sample size among Star Wars fans who had seen all six movies. And, uh, yeah, I think that supported, you know, the, you know, this idea that attack of the clones, um, you know, was the least favored among all the Star Wars movies. But, you know, then there's, you know, I, I read a, you know, a larger poll and like, I think it's newsmovie.com. They had a pretty huge sample size and, you know, Attack of the Clones actually scored pretty well. But I, I mean, I know that clones and Phantom Menace, maybe generally speaking, I mean, just anecdotally, I think, you know, tend to tend to fall down towards the bottom. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know if I would disagree with that. Yeah, when people bitch about the prequels, they generally mean either this or Phantom Menace more than Sith, don't they? Uh, I think so. I think so, yeah. So, um, I... I have so many complaints about this movie <laughs> and I don't, I don't want this to turn into half an hour of me bitching. Um, oh, go for it. So I, t tell us, I, I don't necessarily want to go through it scene by scene, but um, one of the first things I noticed, and this is a criticism that I've had of the prequels in general is how, how ambitious, but poor some of the CGI is. Uh, and I think that's, that's nowhere more pronounced than in the the opening scenes of this movie, which I don't know if you're old enough to remember the golden age of full motion video video games. 
FMV Absolutely. games that came on CDs. Absolutely. <laughs> With Mark Hamill, actually, in one of the most famous, I think it was Wing Commander 3. Um, it really reminded me of that. It's like even the floor that they're walking on is clearly computer generated. Um, it was, it really throws me out because I just look at it and I think video game. It's they're walking around inside a video game. No, I mean, I've, I've yeah, obviously the, the overuse of CG, you know, has been a common complaint, you know, I think with, uh, with all of the prequels. Sure. I, I mean, that's, it's, it's fair. I, you know, I mean, we do have to remember that the, I mean, the pictures are primarily aimed at young people and, and I don't remember too many young people having too much of an issue with the, the use of CG. I mean, Lucas was really pushing the digital technology, especially with clones. I mean, it was the first, you know, major motion picture to be shot on digital and, but still, I mean, with that being said, though, I mean, you know, you take any one of the uh, of the prequels, and there were more practical effects done for you know each individual film than for all three original trilogy pictures put together. So, I mean, it's so there's that interesting you know um, mindset. But um, sure, I mean, we can nitpick some some bad CG and some you know poor shading or rendering or compositing. But I don't know, I don't. For the most part, I don't think general audiences or casual viewers or young people, I don't know if that really, you know, stuck out to them. Possibly not to younger viewers. No, that's that's certainly true. It just really, it throws me out every time. I confess it is one of the reasons I'm very much looking forward to episode seven is the re- the return to more, uh, act, you know, real sets and less green screen. I mean, obviously there will be plenty of CGI in it, but more of an emphasis on practical effects and non green screen stuff. But I I didn't know that about the number of practical effects shots. That is interesting uh, in the prequels. Although I wonder if that's just because there are so many more effects full stop. Uh, you know, or barely a scene goes by without some kind of special effect being required in this movie. Sure. It really is heavy on uh, effects and, you know, stunts and special effects in general. Uh, I mean, I, that that I'm not sure. I mean, proportionally speaking, you know, I haven't crunched. I certainly haven't crunched the number <laughs> on, on that one. But you know, I don't know. It just seems like a little nitpicking to me. I mean, these were these were issues that you know a lot of you know critics and audiences had with the original movies that they were just you know just silly special effects and all spectacle and no substance and you know it just came off like a cartoon and it was hard to kind of get into those movies. I guess that's true. There, there were a lot of those criticisms around the original movies. That I think the main difference, if anything, that I see in the trilogy between the two trilogies is the direction, ironically, and the acting. And the thing is, the prequels are full of good actors. We know that. You know, May, okay, Hayden Christensen was pretty much unknown. Uh, and obviously, Jake Lloyd was an unknown at the time. Um, but pretty much everyone else is a known, noted, and good actor. Um, you know, some very, very good actors in these movies, including in this one. Uh, and yet, the actual acting and the line delivery and I don't know, it's just, it's all off when you compare to the originals where there seemed to be so much more naturalism um, rather than it, everything being incredibly stylized. I think that's the thing. The prequels have always felt very stylized to me, whereas the original trilogy feels very naturalistic in terms of the performances. Obviously you have crazy space aliens and, as you say, lots of special effects and spectacle and stuff, but the characters, as they act, act in a natural fashion, which nobody in the prequels really seems to do. So, I don't know. I guess I come out a little differently. I mean, you know, when I hear about, you know, the acting and the dialogue, you know, when there are complaints about acting and dialogue in a Star Wars movie, I mean, I think, 
you know, you know, I know this is going to be hard for some, maybe I should put a little context around this because I know this is going to be hard for some people to swallow, but you know, the original trilogy movies weren't as universally loved as, as some people might think. Right. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I, and I find this kind of absolutely fascinating because when, when Star Wars fans in particular criticize the prequels, I mean, I don't think many of them realize that, you know, they're just kind of parroting the, I mean, these are the exact same criticisms that film critics and scholars and professors and even industry professionals have been saying about, you know, Star Wars since 1977, you know, and, and, you know, Star Wars, I mean, for the most part is, is never really been taken very seriously, you know, at least as, as kind of as film art, you know? And so I always find it, you know, it's just strange to me because there's really, there's not a single criticism you can throw at the prequels that, that hasn't also been thrown at the original trilogy back then. And, and even today, I mean, the acting, you know, you know, the acting is bad. The dialogue is bad. It's, you know, it's, it's all spectacle, no substance. It's kid stuff. I mean, they would say if you want, you know, if you want serious cinema, you know, go study the French New Wave or go watch Fellini <laughs> or, or, or Ozu. You know, it's, you know, I just find that fascinating because I mean, if, you, if, you, if you take the time to go back and you look at these, you know, a lot of the original reviews, I mean, no one is, no one is saying that the acting in these movies is good or even naturalistic. I mean, that's, you know, worse, you know, a lot of the people who were, who were criticizing, you know, Lucas or were criticizing those movies were even blaming Lucas and even Spielberg, you know, particularly with stars and uh, with star Wars and jaws for, you know, for killing a lot of the you know, more artistic personal filmmaking of, of new Hollywood, the era of the blockbuster. Yeah. Right. I mean, so you had the period from the late sixties to the eighties, you know, with these pictures from, you know, Altman and Ashby and Friedkin and Bogdanovich and, you know, you name it, um, you know, and, and they looked at star Wars, you know, you know, and I guess the point isn't whether to say that, you know, these, these viewpoints are right or wrong, you know, but I find it fascinating that critics and audiences felt the same way about the original trilogy films that, that critics and audiences, and yes, even Star Wars fans feel about the prequel trilogy films. You know, we talk about the acting and the dialogue. I mean, Lucas has been pretty, you know, vocal, at least in this respect. And, I, and just for some reason, people just aren't listening or, or, or they don't care. But, you know, the acting in all of the Star Wars films is, is relatively, the acting style is relatively consistent, you know, and he's, he's, has said it from the beginning. It's, it's a, it's a thirties and forties stylized acting that is essentially it's pre-method, right? The, the, the acting style that came into being like in the fifties with, yeah. you know, the hope of like Elia Kazan and Marlon Brando, you know, and it's meant to evoke those early films of, of Hollywood's golden age, as well as, you know, the, you know, this kind of, uh, the, the Saturday matinee serials like Buck Rogers and, and, and Flash Gordon. Um, so for you to say that, I mean, it's naturalistic. I mean, like if you take, you know, the Empire Strikes Back, the acting in the Empire Strikes Back is still, it's very stylized. The acting style is very old fashioned. It's not that contemporary. I mean, Raging Bull came out in 1980. <laughs> that, that, that is a performance that is naturalistic. It, sure. is, very, it is very method. It is very different than than what you see in in the original trilogy. Sure, but I'm talking in relative terms. I mean, yes, this is not uh, it's not Tchaikovsky, but it's also not uh, Bergman. You know, I, I realize those that there's a whole world of you know of naturalistic acting and stylized acting, which this falls in between. But the original trilogy felt more naturalistic to me than oh, sure. the uh, than the prequels. And I think there's actually, there's a really good example of that here, which is when you think back to uh, A New Hope or episode four, as we now know, call it, 
Um, and the, uh, of course, you know, one of the early scenes with Luke and Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru in the moisture farm. And then you compare that to the scenes in the, the very same moisture farm with, you know, different versions of the same characters and stuff in Attack of the Clones. And the difference in line delivery and the lines they speak and the way it's filmed is very, very stark, I think, and really shows the difference in styles between the two movies. Well, I think the tonality is different, right? And, and again, Lucas has been very specific about this. I mean, the acting style is the same, is relatively consistent across the board. Uh, I, I disagree, but go on. Well, I was just going to say, but he... It, there is a the term that he uses is is effervescent giddiness in the first picture in, in the first series of pictures. There's an energy level um, that he darkened down considerably intentionally because of the trajectory of those stories. Um, but again, this isn't reality acting. He's he's been very clear on that. None of those, you know, are, are natural. I think, you know, by any stretch of the imagination. And they weren't. I mean, and, and you know, and what you're saying in terms of you know the performances in the prequel by the prequel actors is exactly the same things that people said about even Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher and and Empire. You know, it's just all. It just depends on your point of view, right? <laughs> well, I guess, and also maybe time. I just I think those criticisms are more valid for these later movies than for the originals. But I I confess, like I say, I you know I, I lay my own cards on the table. I am an old school original trilogy fan who grew up watching the original trilogy as a child in the cinema. So oh, sure. I, I yeah. completely admit that I am hopelessly biased on this score. I try to be as objective as I can, but obviously I can't help but be biased. There's a, I mean, obviously there's a certain, you know, sense of nostalgia or, you know, viewing these things through rose, you know, rosy colored glasses that I think we all do to some respect, you know, but, um, you know, it, it's just, it's fascinating to me because I think in, in many cases, the films really didn't grow up a whole lot. I mean, and, and I don't think Lucas necessarily did either. I think we did. I think, you know, I grew up with the original films as well. And I think our tastes evolved. And I think, uh, I think, you know, by the time, you know, The Phantom Menace came out, I think, you know, our tastes had evolved, at least mine had, towards something a little bit more, um, uh, you know, just very different. You know, I was, you know, I was watching Paul Thomas Anderson movies and, you know, or, or, you know, waxing philosophical on Wong Kar Wai. And here comes the Phantom Menace. And it had that same kind of, you know, that same kind of style, you know, that the original pictures did, you know, and if you break them down, I mean, I know it's, again, it's kind of hard to believe, but when you deconstruct all these pictures, I mean, they're shot, you know, in much the same way, they're cut in much the same way, they're scored in much the same way, the performances, like I said, are, you know, they are more or less, you know, performed the same way. And, um, and the dialogue is, is, is written in much the same way as well. I know he certainly tried to make a, you know, a, a contrast in terms of the formality, you know, and how regal, you know, and, you know, uh, the, the prequel era was versus the original trilogy. You know, in the prequel era, you have, it's, it's kind of a generation gap thing, right? I mean, not only do you have the, you know, the parents versus the kids, but, you know, in the time and place of where these stories um, take place you know, in the center of the galaxy in the prequels versus this kind of the outskirts of the galaxy, you know, in, in, in the original trilogy. So, you know, a lot of it makes sense in terms of the decisions that he made. Um, yeah, no, I, I can see that. I can see the, the formality, as you say, being increased because they are sort of at the heart of power. But even so, I, I think, you know, Ewan McGregor, especially, I've been a fan of Ewan McGregor's 
since you know his very early cinema work. Um, and I think he's a wonderful actor. And he was, you you know, he rescues or tries to rescue <laughs> to what sound to me like so many bad lines, especially in this movie. He has a lot to do in this movie and doesn't do any of it well. Uh, and, you know, having seen him in so many other movies be brilliant, I can't help but think, well, hang on, what's different about this <laughs> compared to all the other movies he's been in where he's his performance was fantastic, you know? Well, I always find this interesting, too, because what makes, you know, we're assuming that, because um, I kind of come at this, you know, knowing, at least, you know, reading about Lucas and and, and listening to him and, and, and looking at these movies, I I find it interesting that we assume that that what we're seeing up on screen is the result of a failure or, you know, an inability to deliver a certain kind of, you know, uh, performance from an actor versus a deliberate creative choice. Oh, no, no, no. I think it's absolutely a deliberate choice, but I think that choice was Lucas's, not the actor's. Well, exactly. And that's where I think the mistake lies. Not that they... I think these films are exactly what Lucas wanted to make, but that doesn't make them good. Well, that... Oh, like I said, that just depends. That depends on the viewer, right? I mean... But sure, sure. Ultimately, that's just, just a personal taste that's being, you know... Uh, you're disguised as a valid criticism. I mean, you have... Well, I'm not trying to disguise it. It, it is just, you know, it, it is just an opinion. But that is, I mean, that that's the point of this, of the show. You know, let, let's not forget. The whole point of the show is that everybody's opinion is different and valid. And just because I don't like something doesn't mean that somebody else doesn't love it. And, you know, they're both equally valid. Absolutely. So with that in mind, give us a few things of what you do really like about episode two structure, you know, ring theory and structure aside, tell us the things that you like about it and the reasons that you think people should go back and watch it with a different eye. Well, I mean, I was, I was hoping to actually <laughs> to kind of start with at least the, the ring theory and how that kind of pertains to clones. Cause I think what he does there is it's, it's worth a second look. If you, if you take a close look at the opening moments of clones, um, you see this uh, a large Naboo cruiser and you know three small escort ships slowly descending into the galactic you know capital of Coruscant, right? And if you compare this with the uh, a sequence near the con- conclusion of Empire, you know Luke is dangling from a weather vane in a cloud city, and he's rescued by Leia and Lando, and together they speed away in the Falcon, and they're actually being pursued by three Tie Fighters. So. Whereas Empire ends with three small ships chasing a large ship that's escaping a city in the clouds, Clones begins with three small ships escorting a large ship that's landing among mile-high skyscrapers shrouded in dense fog, which is a veritable city in the clouds. So in other words, Clones begins where Empire ends. And not only that, but Clones actually ends where Empire begins, um, you know, in the underground caverns of a barren wasteland, Geonosis and Clones and Hoth and Empire. You know, it's important to point out, though, that, that Clones isn't telling the story of Empire in reverse. That is, I mean, the change in direction between the films, it's, it's not just being, in, you know, going backwards and forwards. I argue, you know, in the essay that it should be read in terms of high and low. So to put it simply, Clones starts in a high place, a city in the clouds, and ends in a low place. And Empire starts low and ends high. And what this means is that when the films are seen as parallel sections of this ring composition... The structure of clones can be thought of descending, and the structure of empire is ascending. 
So the reason I think, and I, again, I argue, the reason I think why Lucas does this is because this, um, this point in the story, this is the point in the story where Anakin um, really begins his descent um, to the dark side, you know, his, um, his descent uh, into hell, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and this is the point of the ring structure, you know, as we begin to descend towards the midpoint of the ring. So if you think of the, you know, uh, if you think of the ring structure as a circle, um, this is the point that we start to descend um, towards the, uh, the lowest point, the very bottom of the circle that will hit its Sith. You know, and after that, then the ring then becomes, it begins to ascend back towards the starting point. So this is kind of one of the reasons why Lucas structured the films as kind of opposites. Um, and I think this is just a really, um, this is just a really fascinating example of how, you know, form and content work together here to really express what Lucas is trying to convey. Although if you take that literally, that would mean, because the whole point of Empire is that the film is a descent and it's not until Jedi that they come out of it. So that doesn't quite work in the mirror um, because in Empire, they're not ascending, they're descending. By the end of the movie, all hope is lost. That's what makes the ending of Empire so powerful. And then it takes the events of Jedi and the climax of Jedi to bring them back up and give the heroic climactic victory and restore, you know, balance. Well, visually, you have to remember, I mean, Empire ascends to a city in the clouds. There are moments of descent within that city, you know, as as we kind of go down to the dark underbelly of, of Bespin. Sure, but you were saying about how it parallels with um, Anakin's descent in episode two, with Anakin's descent into the dark side and becoming Sith, which is absolutely true. Yes, you know, the descent into hell, and it's a very common trope, as you, I'm sure, will know to use that sort of visual, literal descent uh, through physical structures to represent and parallel a character's descent into madness or hell or evil and bad decisions. That's absolutely on board with that, but that doesn't work in reverse for Jedi, sorry, for Empire, because Empire is also a descent figuratively, and yet visually, as you say, it ascends. So the two are not in parallel there at all. I don't know if I would agree with that. I mean, let's let's break it down a little bit uh, a little bit further. I mean, in Attack of the Clones, you know, if you take a look at the first act, and this is this becomes really fascinating. On Coruscant, I mean, the whole first act of the picture is about um, Anakin, uh, you know, and Obi Wan kind of luring this mysterious attacker to him by using Padme as bait, and then it ends with a bounty hunter escaping. So, if you take the third act in Empire Strikes Back on Cloud City, Darth Vader is doing the same thing. He's luring a character to him by using Han, Leia, and Chewie as bait. And that also ends with a bounty hunter escaping. It's an important plot point. Empire, as you remember, you know, starts with um, the Empire discovering the location of the hidden rebel base on Hoth and launching a major ground offensive. The rebels evacuate. The end of Attack of the Clones is the exact opposite. The Republic discovers the location of the hidden Separatist base on Geonosis and launches a major ground offensive, and the Separatists evacuate. So Lucas is very clearly setting these two up to, you know, to fit into that larger structure. And again, the specifics, you know, within the middle of the picture are, are, just, as, are just as pronounced. I mean, Anakin escorts Padme to safety off-planet where they fall in love. And in Empire, Han escorts Leia to safety off-planet where they fall in love. 
you know. And meanwhile, Obi-Wan travels to Kamino in search of a mysterious bounty hunter named Jango Fett. Meanwhile, in Empire, Luke travels to a faraway planet in search of a mysterious Jedi Master. And believe it or not, those two, you know, and many of those events line up in the time code uh, almost, you know, almost, uh, you know, down to the minute. I think that's probably the weakest example that you gave there. I'm not sure whether you can con- uh, compare the search for a bounty hunter to Luke going and searching for a Jedi master to teach him the ways of the force. I think that's, that's a real stretch. The others I'll, I'll grant you are interesting parallels and possibly coincidences, but that, I think that one's a bit of a stretch. Well, like I said, that's just the basic structure. But when you look, when you start taking into account where these things are happening and when they're happening, I mean, Lucas chose Camino. I mean, he, he made Camino a stormy planet covered entirely by oceans for a very specific reason that then parallels, you know, the, uh, the planet of Dagobah. You know, uh, the physical appearance of Yoda and the Kaminoans also reflect each other. You know, unlike Yoda's diminutive stature, crippled hobble and broken syntax, the Kaminoans are very tall, long-necked, and they have fluid Tai Chi-type movements. I'm not really seeing how an ocean planet mirrors a swamp. If, if Dagobah had been a desert like Tatooine, I could, I could see that, but I don't really see how a, an ocean planet and a swamp are kind of either parallels or opposites. Well, they're parallels in terms of, I mean, this is where you get into the, you know, the mythological underpinnings of it. And Dagobah being a planet of life and Camino being, you know, this watery vision, which Lucas has said is, you know, he, he chose that because it's uh, the credo of biological evolution. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's I mean, the, you know, when you get into the mythological underpinnings of it and the psychological underpinnings of it, I think, yeah, there's, there's, there's definite parallels in there that um, I think are pretty apparent. I don't know. I, I admit this is where you're starting to lose me and I'm starting to think you might be seeing things that aren't there. Because I just don't think Camino and Dagobah you can really make, or yeah, searching for a bounty hunter, a murderer, as opposed to I'm going to go and seek out somebody who can teach me the ways of the Force. I just I'm not seeing the uh, the parallels there. But you know, <laughs> did you? I'm just curious. Did you happen to look through the section on Attack on the Clones at all on the as part of the essay? Uh, no, I admit I didn't. Uh, I I watched the movie again, and I've sort of you know, obviously seen the prequels and stuff but and i've skimmed the essay i will admit only skimmed i have not read in detail partly because i wanted to talk to you about it and i didn't want to uh go in sort of already knowing what you were going to say to me right part of the joy of this is uh the, you know, the surprise of it <laughs> well sure 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 i assume from that you're going to say there's stuff in the essay that is about clones that is relevant to the points we're talking about here so well i mean which part i mean <laughs> i guess i, I it's just well we were talking about the um the last point i'd made was the the you were talking about the parallel between camino and dagobah right right is that something that you touch on in the essay yes yes in, in empire you know I'll, i guess I'll, I'll back up a little bit i mean luke travels to dagobah in search of a mysterious character um, and he crash lands onto this remote planet about about 40 minutes into the film. And at almost the exact same time in Clones, I mean, this is when Obi-Wan's investigation, you know, into the uh, assassination attempts on Amidala leads him to Kamino. Um, and, and yeah, I think both sequences really correspond to each other in a lot of interesting details. And as you go through the essay, you'll see these shots lined up, you know, next to each other, um, where Lucas is visually um, with, you know, he's he's... He's showing these parallels through visuals, 
through music, through these, um, through these plot points, um, through the dialogue. Um, again, like I said, just even with the characters, I mean, with a character name like Lama Sue in the prime, in the, being the prime minister of Camino versus the, uh, the name Yoda, um, both, you know, kind of having that same, um, that same Taoist kind of background. Like I said, the physical appearances of Yoda and Camino are direct, um, you know, are, are, are very clearly uh, playing off of each other. And as soon as, and, and what's fascinating too is when this happens, I mean, then uh, meanwhile in clones, a romance begins to blossom between Anakin and Padme, and much like it does between Han and Leia and Empire. That was actually the very next thing I was going to bring up because I think that is a, another example of the difference, the very large difference in tone and frankly delivery of performance between the two. Because at no point, and I was going to ask where you stand on, you know, Padme falling for Anakin, who is clearly a psychopath. <laughs> there didn't seem to be any, it didn't feel natural in any way whatsoever. He, ex- he exudes no charisma. He, there is no, I mean, I know love isn't logical, but there is no logical reason whatsoever for her to be attracted to him. Um, and the things he does, you know, frankly, make me wonder about Amidala's psychological problems because no sane woman should find herself attracted to a man like this. Well, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know quite what to say to that. I mean, I, I will say that, you know, again, I find it kind of fascinating that, you know, we, we're, we're calling this, you know, the, the, the Han and Leia, you know, um, kind of love story is kind of naturalistic or, I mean, even Lawrence, even Lawrence Kasdan thought that there wasn't, you know, it felt somewhat forced and it wasn't quite anything what he imagined it to be. Um, but it feels more naturalistic than this. There is at least, it feels like there is some kind of chemistry between the actors, whereas, or at least as they portray the characters, whereas in this movie, I... It's so cold. It's so cold and emotionless. Even though everybody keeps talking about how emotional they are, they don't seem to actually express any emotion. I just didn't get any of it at all. Uh, I just, it's just, I'm, it sounds like I, I, I sound, I feel like I'm talking to a critic from 1980. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, you got to think about what Lucas is up to, right? I mean, you know, with the love story between Han and you know, between Han and Leia, I mean, Lucas was very clearly using that trope of uh, the bickering lovers, right? Sure. Um, and even, even though it wasn't really very contemporary at the time, you know, a lot of the snappy comebacks were right out of the, the Thin Man, you know, the, the old movies from the 30s. Again, playing with these variations on different themes, you know, what Lucas did with, you know, with, um, with Padme and... Uh, and Anakin is really, uh, he based it on an idea of, of courtly love. Oh, like, like a Jane Austen kind of. Well, not even, even, no, we're talking even, even, uh, further back. I mean, this is a highly stylized depiction of that medieval concept, right? Where a young man, um, often a knight pursues and often, uh, you know, an older lady of high rank and, and station, you know, we're t- very much in the tradition of Tristan and Isolde or, or Lancelot and Guinevere. Right. Yeah. This is, this is very old. And, you know, and, and Lucas knew, you know, even you, when you read back and you, know, and you listen to what he's saying, I mean, he knew it was an extremely, he wanted to tell a love story in a style that was extremely old fashioned, you know, much more like a movie from the thirties. Yeah. And he didn't know, like he said, he knew pe- a lot of people weren't going to buy it. And he knew that, you know, a lot of, you know, older, you know, more cynical types don't buy that kind of stuff. And a lot of guys, particularly they, they, 
think that flowery poetic talk is just stupid. Um, but, um, but it was very, I mean, it's, it's very interesting, this kind of variation on, on that, that kind of a different trope. And I actually came across this really, you know, terrific little essay called love and star Wars. I mean, the, the, and this author kind of breaks down, you know, um, all the stages of courtly love, which there's, there's this historian, Barbara Tuckman, and, and she, uh, she studied medieval literature and it's, it's pretty cool how in this essay, he takes all the different stages of courtly love, you know, from attraction to the lady, you know, from afar or heroic deeds of valor to win the lady's heart and, and kind of shows how Lucas kind of just went step by step with this, um, just to kind of take a different, you know, a different take on, on this love story. So, um, I mean, I, I find that kind of stuff fascinating. I don't, um, I think, I mean, a lot of people I talked to thought there was chemistry. A lot of people thought, you know, a lot of younger people, especially, you know, it worked for them. But the old, like Lucas said, a lot of the older, more sophisticated, cynical types, I mean, they just didn't buy into it. So, and again, it's like, you know, you, the same thing happened in 1980. I mean, older, sophisticated types did not buy the Han and Haya love story. They didn't think it was well-performed. They didn't think the dialogue was very good. Um, and they thought it was extremely contrived and it just came off as cartoonish. So, um, it just depends on where you're sitting, I guess. <laughs> or, or what year you're sitting in. <laughs> right. right. All right. Well, uh, I think we've, we've rambled long enough. So on that note, let's bring this to a close. Um, Mike Climo, thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much for having me. So where can people find you if they like the crazy things that you have to say? Yeah, please. Uh, Check out StarWarsRingTheory.com. The essay's there. And, and hopefully, you know, there's enough in there to, uh, to show you that I'm not completely crazy. And <laughs> there's enough evidence there to at least kind of um, give a basic idea of what I think Lucas was trying to accomplish. Um, uh, other than that, I mean, it's, it's uh, going to be, believe it or not, the, uh, the subject of a, of a documentary, um, hopefully by the end of the year. Oh, very cool. Yeah, there's a, there's a crowdfunding campaign going on now. If you want to learn more about that, you can head over to uh, unlearntheprequels.com. And where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, just at Mike Climo, M-I-K-E-K-L-I-M-O. Wonderful. Mike Climo, thank you very much for coming on the show. All right, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Unjustly Maligned. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please check out my comics, books, and music. For example, if epic sci-fi is your thing, you may enjoy my graphic novel series Wasteland, a post-apocalyptic mystery quest across a ruined America. Wasteland is available at your local comic or bookstore and at online retailers everywhere. Go to anthonyjohnston.com where you'll find information and links to all of my work. Please also consider rating Unjustly Maligned on iTunes. It's the best way to spread the word about the show and is very much appreciated. Unjustly Maligned is a 7RQ production for The Incomparable and is made in England. You can find more information, links and show notes at ump.fm. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. So which is your favorite uh, movie of all six? It's weird. Now I, you know, I almost see them as one saga. You know, I, I see it as just one long story. Huh. And it's, I mean, it's kind of hard for me to kind of go back and forth. I mean, you know, the more, I mean, it, it changes over time. I mean, 
Um, I mean, growing up, I remember Jedi was all, I mean, I was, you know, I was born in 77. Right. Um, you know, just a few days before, before a new hope or before star Wars came out before it was that. Right. Before Um, it was even called a new hope. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So, I mean, I, um, you know, like a lot of, I know like a lot of young people growing up though, I remember empire being kind of the boring one, the doll one. And, you know, but you kind of gravitate towards that when you get older and, um, ah, see, I, I loved empire at the time I was born in 72. Uh, and I, so I was very young when I saw the original Star Wars in the theatre and then obviously, you know, quite a bit older when I saw Empire in 81. Um, and no, even at the time, I absolutely loved Empire, uh, partly for um, Yoda and all the Force Power stuff and also partly for the Hoth scene, which I just still, you know, absolutely adore. The battle scene on Hoth and the Attach just as a child absolutely blew my mind and I thought Snowspeeders were the coolest looking spaceships I had ever seen. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, it's this might blow your mind though, but Attack of the Clones, like if you use Rotten Tomatoes methodology, uh, Attack of the Clones was actually reviewed better um, than Empire Strikes Back. Really? Wow. It's it's unbelievable. Yeah, and actually, um, like I said, Rotten Tomatoes put out this story. Then it was challenged by Michael Kaminsky, you know, the author of the book called The Secret History of Star Wars. Mm-hmm. So then um, I actually went back and, and like tripled the sample size and and used R- Rotten Tomatoes methodology in it. Yeah, it's I think Empire would have scored like a 62, 63. I mean, there were a, there was a lot of ne- <laughs> a lot of negativity. It was interesting that you mentioned about how tastes change, you know, as you grow up and stuff, which of course is absolutely true. But I will say that I spent my teenage years role-playing a lot of the star wars rpg and uh playing board games and getting involved in you know sort of creating role-playing games and writing comics and you know all these things that kind of uh insulated me if you like from growing up too much (laughs) you know that kind of that pulpy uh attitude towards entertainment and youthful fiction has never really left me. I, I, you know, I certainly like to think so anyway. So (laughs) I, I I know exactly what you mean, but I, I like to think that I was, no, of course I didn't have the same taste as I did when I was 10 years old, but I like to think that I was closer to that than a lot of the other people who were watching Phantom, you know, same age as me and watching stuff like Phantom Menace for the first time. It's funny that you mentioned that it's almost like it's one of the themes of attack of the clones. And it's, it's why um, I would argue Lucas put in the reference to, you know, John Milner's yellow hot rod from American graffiti, you know, to sh- I mean, John Milner's character is just like Anakin who refuses to grow up, refuses to move on, refuses to let go. And he's in the state of, you know, what, what young Carl Young wrote about was this perpetual adolescent, yeah, yeah. you know, which oh, I've, you know, I've made a career out of being a perpetual adolescent. <laughs> right, right. I'm probably right there with you. So, <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.